Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Grab your Bible if you've got it handy. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 10 tonight. If you need a Bible, get the attention of one of the ushers. They'll drop one off to you. 2 Samuel is about that far in, about a third of the way through. We are studying the life of David, and we're in chapter 10 tonight, so uh, let's prepare our hearts. Let's read. I'm going to read the first eight verses, though we'll go through the whole chapter tonight, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into uh, the message that, that God has for us. And so uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says this. It says that it came to pass after this, that the king of the children of Ammon died. Ammon is Jordan. It's a neighboring nation to Israel. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan, their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father? that he has sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore, or for this reason, Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, little pocket, And sent them away. And they told, or when they told it unto David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, tarry or wait at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of King Maaka, a thousand men, and of Ishtab, 12,000 men. So they call their friends and say, we might be in some trouble. Come and help us out. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the children of Ammon came out and put the battle in array at the entering in of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and Ishtab and Maaka were by themselves in the field. Let's pray. Father, we, we just again, we bring your word. We come and we approach you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that your word speaks. And we ask you now, Lord, that you would give us understanding, not just of the text at hand, but of what's going on in Israel, what's going on in David, what's going on in the grand scheme, and most of all, how it applies to our lives today. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to speak through that which has been spoken. So would you speak to us now, Lord, as we open up our hearts to you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if the life of a man is like a mountain, wherein it has an ascent and then an apex and then a decline, we find David here in chapter 10 really at the apex of his life. He really has reached the top. If David died right now in, in this chapter, in chapter 10, it would be both epic and tragic. It would be epic because he 
has really done so much. I mean, we have just seen what God can do in bringing someone from the lowest place to the highest place. And it would just be nothing but an aspiration story, something that would inspire us and move us to want to be like David. It would be tragic because it would be a good man dying in his prime, and it would leave us on the edge of our seats wondering what would have, what could have been had his life gone on. That's where David is at in this moment. Now, David is aware of how blessed he is, and he's kind of in a season, as it were, of gratitude, a mode of thanksgiving. He is repaying old debts. He is remembering those people that were good to him while he was suffering, while he was being afflicted and tested. And he is seeking to show gratitude, express thanksgiving, repay them in every way that he can. We saw what he did in the last chapter to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, wanting to keep his word as Jonathan showed kindness. We join David here in the beginning of this chapter, thinking about the king of, of Ammon, who, while David was wandering, showed kindness to him. We don't even get his name. We just know that he helped David out. We know that for a season, David's parents even needed to seek refuge because Saul was on a rampage to just hurt David in any way that he could. And so David, fearing for his family, sent them to Moab, which was neighboring with Ammon. And, and so the, David just wanting to repay, just feeling gratitude and wanting to show kindness to whoever he can. That's where he is. Now, in light of all of that, and in spite of all of that, there is something else that's brewing under the surface inside of David. There is an insipid disease that invades undetected in seasons like this. In seasons where everything is going right and everything has come together and everything begins to make sense and everything is clear and prosperous and without pain and forward and up and to the right. There's something that happens underneath the surface that is beginning to happen in David. David is beginning to be lifted up in pride. That five-letter word that all of us love. Now, the text doesn't say it. We don't read in chapter 1 or chapter 10, verse 1, that now David was beginning to be lifted up in pride. But what we do understand is that the environment is right for it, and the indications are there in this moment, and the evidence shows itself clearly when we get into the next chapter. It's never listed in scripture. You'll never read a text of the Bible where it says, these are the seven deadly sins. But you ever heard of them? You ever heard that phrase before, the seven deadly sins? Theologians, philosophers, scholars across cultures and across centuries all agree that there are seven categories of sin that are more destructive and more damnable than many others. And, and that has held through over time. And number one on the list is that five-letter word, pride. Pride. I'll tell you the seven just so that you're not wondering for the rest of the study what they are. But they're pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth or laziness. 
Now, we all know that all sin is deadly and that all sin is sin before God. But we also know that there are some categories of sin that are more destructive than others because they seem to get a stronger grip if they take hold. They seem to be more deadly to us, and thus that is why they get that name, the deadly sins. Now, pride is number one on the list. Let me read to you the Oxford Dictionary's definition of the word pride. It's a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, qualities, or possessions, especially those that are widely admired. Webster defines pride pride this way, a justifiable feeling of being worthwhile, self-respect. Now, that's kind of soft. Daniel Webster was the Christian, and he softens it just a touch, but then he comes through and he twists the knife with his B definition, the second one. (laughs) It's this, a feeling of being better than others. And that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? A feeling of being better than others. Now, I, I know what most of us are thinking right now, and that is, what's wrong with that? You know, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Like, isn't that what we do, you know? And, and, and just for a moment, I'll give you half a second. If you want to sneak out, like if you want to leave and you don't want to hear about pride and, and that whole thing, you could do that now because this probably isn't one of those uh, feel-good messages um, because we all understand this. We all feel this whole thing, Okay. Pride. The Bible dictionary defines it this way. If you look it up in the, in the, uh, the lexicon, it's, a, it's to be insolent or an insolent and empty assurance which trusts in its own power and resources and shamefully despises and violates divine law and human rights. Another way the Bible defines it, uh, another Bible uh, translator defines it as an impious and empty presumption that trusts in stability or in the stability of earthly things. We understand what pride is, okay? But pride is different from all of the other sins. And pride is probably more destructive than all of the other sins. And here's why. Because the symptoms of pride can be very hard to detect until they kill you suddenly. (laughs) That's what happens. And the only, pride is the only condition that a man can possess that everyone else knows they're infected with it except for the person that's infected with it. (laughs) They're the ones that see it last. Everyone else sees it ahead of time. Now, The truth is, and here's fact, is that every single one of us wants to feel valued and wants to be valuable. That's universally true. There's not one of us. If if it wasn't true, then there would be no such thing as pride because pride feeds that desire that we have to want to be valuable or to want to be valued. But pride is the condition where a person derives their sense of self-worth by measuring themselves against others. In other words, I determine my value or assess my value to be great based upon something that I deem to be greater than somebody else. 
And in that, I find my sense of self-worth or self-respect. That's what pride is. I assign value to myself based on measurable, observable, operational, functional features of my person and life that are comparable to other people. I am valuable because I am intelligent. I'm more intelligent than you are, and thus I am more valuable than you. I am better than you because I have money or I know how to make money. I am valuable because I'm good looking and I'm better looking. Now, these are all not obviously true about me. I'm, I'm talking about you. You're saying this, some of these things, not me. You know, uh, I, I am better because I'm humble, right? No, same, same idea. You know, I am better because I'm valuable because I'm talented or I'm likable. I have a likable personality. I am valuable because I'm charismatic or gifted in some way. I am valuable because I've made it. I've achieved what other people aspire to achieve that try to but fall short. I am valuable because I am righteous. That's the religious pride that crops up is because I keep the commandments of God and do what God says. And so therefore I'm more righteous than you. And I find my value in that. That's pride. Sometimes I'm more valuable than you because I'm older than you are. And so I have more experience, and so I'm just better than you because I'm like aged wine. I'm just better because the the number that I associate with my age is better. I am better, I'm valuable because I have a nicer or faster car than you do. And so I hold on to that. I'm better. I have good style. My clothes are better than your clothes. And so therefore, I'm valuable. And we can literally be prideful or assign value to ourselves based on anything we want to. I did a job for a guy a couple of weeks ago that spent eight hours on his lawn that was about half the size of this room, front and yard back combined. And he was on his hands and knees with hand scissors edging his driveway. And he was a young guy. He was younger than me, probably in his 20s. And I said to him, because I I, I noticed what he, I said, you have a very nice lawn. And he stood up and he puffed out his chest and lifted up his head. And you know what he said to me? No dandelions. (laughs) Not one. He goes, look at all the other lawns. He had value because he had a nice lawn. (laughs) We can assign value to ourselves based upon anything we want, and we look and love for and after those things that make us feel like we're valuable or more valuable than someone else. And do you guys know what fiat currency is? You know, fiat currency, a fiat currency is like the dollar. The dollar is a fiat currency. It's an it's inconvertible paper money that's made legal tender by a decree. In other words, a dollar bill that you have in your pocket right now, if you have one, is really worthless. It's a piece of paper that says this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. But that dollar has no real intrinsic value. You can't mine it. You can't make something out of it. You can't eat it. It is money because people say it's money. And that's it. And, and that's a fiat currency. And what I want you to understand is that pride is the fiat currency of self-worth, okay? All of the things that we use to assess our self-value are only valuable because they are esteemed by man. 
being good-looking, having a nice car, having money, being talented, being funny, all of those things are only valuable because man values those things. But they hold no real value. They don't define the value of a person. I'm not better because I'm something that you are not. That's a false value. That's a fiat value system. Now, pride in all of its manifestations and consequences and everything that comes with it is an inescapable fact of life in this world. You cannot do away with it. The Bible says so. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And I want to read it to you. It says this. John writes, and he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he tells us what that means. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it, but he that does the will of God abides forever. In other words, John says that, listen, this world is full of pride and you're not going to be able to escape it. But if you use pride as a means of elevating your self-worth, then you are not only out of the will of God, but you're going to lose in the end because everything that's in this world is ultimately going to pass away. And if the things that you're basing your value on cannot be sustained, then your value cannot be sustained. And therefore, pride can become extremely deadly. It is lethally destructive. It's a subtle, silent, surprising killer. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. You guys know the verse. Pride goes before what? And a haughty spirit before a fall. We all know that verse. Usually we say that pride goes before a fall. It's something that we understand. I want to read you something that Timothy, or that Paul wrote to Timothy. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. And he was talking about people that become leaders in the church. And he gives us instruction concerning those who would be selected to be leaders, elders, pastors, etc. in the church. He gives this qualification in verse 6. He says, not a novice or a new believer or a rookie, lest, for this reason, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, that's amazing to me. Think about that for just a minute. He says, if a person becomes lifted up, puffed up with pride, they fall into the condemnation of the devil. He is telling us there essentially that the origin, the root cause of Lucifer, the angel of light, Becoming Satan, the devil, the dragon, was pride. That it was that which cost him his position. You say, well, what's the backstory behind all of that? In Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, first Ezekiel chapter 28, there's two Old Testament passages that really un unfold and show us what happened to the devil. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, it describes the devil, not as a dragon, a liar, or a murderer, but it describes him as a glorified, beautified angel of God. And it describes him in these words, beauty, wisdom, privilege, ability, and opportunity. 
If you go through and read Ezekiel 28, you'll see all of those characteristics ascribed to Lucifer. He was the prince or the chief of the creation of God. He was musical. He was intelligent. He was wise. He knew how to get things done. And you get this whole idea that he had this prominent, privileged position in heaven. But in all of that, he realized, I'm wiser than the other angels. I'm more beautiful than the other angels. I'm more highly favored and gifted and able than all of the other angels. I'm better than the other angels. And he began to get lifted up with pride. Well, how high did he get lifted up? You read Isaiah chapter 14, and we hear out of his own mind, recorded by the prophet Isaiah, the things that he was thinking. And do you know what he was thinking? He was thinking, I'm bigger I'm better, I'm more powerful than God. I should be God. And he said five times, I will ascend. I will be like the most high. I'm the one that should be sitting on the throne. I know how to get things done. His ways are so slow. And he seems so slow. And why doesn't he, and and he didn't understand that God is God and sees what he can't, knows what he can't. And so he thought that he could do better. And so he thought, I'm going to be like God. Well, I want you to listen to what Jesus said was the outcome of that. In the book of Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was on earth, he was sending his disciples out, first 12 and then 70 to go and minister. He was giving them temporary kingdom powers to go cast out demons, to go heal the sick, to go do miracles in his name. He was training them. They had training wheels and they had power given to them temporarily. So they go out, they come back, and Jesus says, tell me about your experience. And they said, Lord, it was amazing. They said, even the demons obeyed us when we spoke in your name. And then Jesus says something that almost doesn't make sense. It almost seems like it doesn't jive with what they just said. He said, I beheld, I saw, I watched Satan fall like lightning. I saw him fall. That's what happened to the devil, by the way. He fell. Pride goes before a fall. He was cast out. It says like lightning. Lightning is unexpected. It's a surprise and it happens in an instant. In one instant, The devil's pride cost him his place, and he went from Lucifer to Satan, the dragon, because of pride. Now, the the question is, why did Jesus say that there? Why did Jesus say that, you know, when they said, Lord, even, even the demons, you gave us his power, it was awesome. Why does he say that? Because he was warning them against pride. He says it in verse 20. He says, notwithstanding... In this, in the power that you have, in the ability and the gifts that I've given to you, in this rejoice not that spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice. Don't fall into the trap of taking joy or finding value in the things about your life that make you more powerful than someone else. Oh, I got the man. I got him. I bagged him. I'm going to marry him. 
I got the job that I've been waiting for. I finally signed on the dotted line and I have the house. I have wise wisdom. I have people skills. I'm, I've got a great family name. I've got opportunity. Don't rejoice in those things because they will not last. It'll puff you up, but you're going to lose those things. If you're going to rejoice, rejoice in one thing. If you're going to find value in something, find value in one thing. It is this, that your names are written in heaven. Now, how is your name written in heaven? It's not because of anything you do. It's not because of anything you have or anything you are. Your name can only be written in heaven because of who you are linked to, and that is Jesus. If you have Jesus, your name is written in heaven, and you have reason to rejoice because your value is sure and secure, and no one can take it from you. And if you're going to find value in your life in something, let it be in the fact that you belong to Jesus and that you're linked in him and that that's your identity. What did the father say to the son when he spoke from heaven to Jesus on earth? He said, this is my son, that's identity. And he said, in whom I am well pleased. Not with whom, not because of what he did, not even because of what he will do. He said, in him I am well pleased. And so how is the father pleased? with what is in him. If you're in Christ, that is the value of your life. And it is the only value that will last, okay? Now, if your rejoicing is in anything else, if your value is in anything else other than him, then you will be infected by something that is more lethal than COVID because it has a 99.7% kill rate. And that is pride. And David is in the prime environment to foster pride in this season of his life. There are four things going on with David and for David right now that foster an environment of pride. First of all, achievement. Second of all, allotment. Third, advancement. And finally, honor. Let's quickly go through these. Achievement, number one. David has overcome every obstacle. He's triumphed over his trials. He's arrived at the appointed place that God had for his life. He has faced Goliath. He's outlasted his persecutors. He's fought his battles. He's silenced his haters. He's made a name for himself, and he's taken his place upon the throne. And David has effectively done what 99.9% of people never do. And in his mind, he has the privilege, should he want it, of thinking himself to be better than other people based upon his achievements. Second of all, David's allotment. That is the blessing or the privilege that God has placed upon his life. He is blessed by God. Everything that David touches is successful and blessed. When he wants to build a temple For God, a house for himself, there's suddenly a knock at the door. And and a Syrian builder named Hiram is there. And he says, hey, listen, I've got all these cedar logs that I I need something to do with. You got any use for them? He was like, yeah, I was just asking God if I could build something. And here you are bringing me all this lumber. Thank you. When David needs a battle plan to go up against his enemies. He says, Lord, what should I do? And God says, here's what you do. I want you to wait over here, come around the backside. When you hear wind blowing in the top of the trees, then blow the horn and go into the battle and you're going to (laughs) win. That's great. Thanks, God. God tells him what to do. Even when God says no to David, 
concerning something David wants to do. God says, no, you can't do that because it's not my will for your life, but I've got something better for you, and here it is. Everything that David is doing is blessed. It's a blessing. It's an anointing upon his life. And even amongst those that have it, 99% of people don't walk in that. They don't live in it. They don't receive it. And David has reason to think himself to be better than other people because of what God is doing in his life. Not just achievement and allotment, but also advancement. And, and it's, a, it's a kind of advancement that comes without adversity. David is moving and the borders are expanding. His enemies are falling. His bank account is growing. His family is flourishing. His reputation and his ratings are up. He's got more views. He's got more likes. His metrics are shooting through the roof day by day. Everything he's doing is just getting better and better and better. And there's absolutely no resistance at all. And finally, David is in a place where he is honored, respected, and liked and approved by almost everyone around him. And even Jesus said, beware when that happens. Check yourself when everyone likes you and everyone is speaking well of you. Be careful. That might not be a good thing. But that's exactly what is happening for David. And all of this is the perfect environment for pride to foster. Now we see in David, not only is the environment right, but we see that the evidence is there. What's the evidence that David is getting lifted up in pride here? We see it in the text in chapter 10. First of all, and you can check yourself in this, this is the evidence that pride is at work inside of you. First of all, meddling in non-essentials. We see right here at the very beginning of the chapter that David, with good intention, as far as what he can see in himself, wants to show kindness to the heir apparent of a Syrian king that once helped him out. Oh, he died, Hain and his son. I'm going to show kindness unto him. And so he hears about it. He remembers the kindness. And to his credit, he wants to show sympathy and express gratitude. But he forgets something. He forgets that the Ammonites are not the friends of the Israelites. He's forgetting that God specifically said back in Deuteronomy chapter 2 to leave them alone. God gave them their place and their border. He's not going to give their land to Israel, so leave them alone. Mind your business, God had already said, okay? Thirdly, David is not considering in this that the Ammonites are not happy for him. David's happy for him. David went from shoveling sheep's dung to driving a Bentley in the palace, and he's thinking that everyone is going to rejoice for all the good that God has done for him. Listen, when God begins to bless your life, understand something. The people that are on the outside of that watching are not happy for you. <laughs> okay, that's just not real. It's, hopefully the church is. Hopefully your brothers and sisters in Christ are. You know, I, I, I had great advice given to me by Bobby's brother. He's here tonight. He told me one time, he, he, it was in the men's room, which is where the, theological discussions and, you know, deep things are, are shared. But he said to me, he looked at me, I said, how you doing, Jamie? And Jamie said this, he said, he said, what do you do when you've got it better than everyone else? And I just looked at him for a minute and he said, keep it to yourself. And then he walked out of the room, you know, <laughs> and somebody needs to tell David, keep it to yourself. These people don't care that you're blessed. 
He's meddling in non-essentials. And the advice to you and I is stay in your lane, okay? Because when you get lofty and you start poking your head in other things, you can justify it seven ways. Oh, he died. But somewhere in there, somewhere in there, there's a, I want him to see how good I've got it. And when my servants show up in a limousine and they've got their nice pressed iron collared shirt with the gold inscribed embroidered letter D in it for King David, they're going to say, wow, you know, no, 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 it's not going to work like that. And it doesn't work like that. A second thing is entitlement going on in David. The evidence of pride is entitlement. David is starting a new habit here. And we see it 12 times in two chapters. And maybe you caught it as we were reading. It says that David sent, David sent, David sent servants. David sent servants for Mephibosheth. David sent for, David sent servants to them. David, it says in verse seven of the text we read tonight that David sent Joab into the battle. We're going to see in the next chapter that David sends Joab and then David sends for the woman he saw on the roof. David is beginning to think, well, you know what? I don't really need to go anymore. I'm the king. I've got servants. I've got people that are paid and and in good position to do these things. And so I'm just going to take kind of a backseat and I'm not going to worry about those things. Listen, if David really felt sympathy for Hanan, the son of the king, why didn't he go himself? I'm sure that if David went, he would have been received in a much greater way, a much more respectful way than his servants were who represented him, but that were not him, okay? He sends. There's something growing inside of David here. It's an evidence of pride. Number three, this is a big one. Number three is prayerlessness. There is nowhere, anywhere in this where God directs David to do any of it. And this is increasingly becoming David's way during this season of his life. Do you remember back a couple of years ago, for us it was just a couple of chapters, where David didn't sneeze without praying about it. He's like, God, should I go fight? No. Okay. God, should I fight? Yeah. God, how should I fight? I want you to do it this way. And and there was just such this thing, everything David did, he was doing by prayer. We read nothing about David asking or God sending. David in this season is very prayerless. He's just doing. And listen, there is no greater evidence of pride in a human's life or in a Christian's life than moving without praying thinking, well, I've got this, I've got options, and even if it doesn't work, it'll be okay. That's pride. I don't need God. Fourthly, we see some vengefulness in David. Okay, listen. The men of Amnon, they put David's servants to shame. They shaved off half their beards. They cut their clothing back down to the buttocks. But ultimately, David's response is that he puts them to death. Okay, remember that whole thing about an eye for an eye? You know, be just, be fair in the way that you go about doing things. You know, David, his pride is insulted. And he says, you're going to shame my men. I'm going to show you what I'll do. You know, and that, that's pride, okay? That's not the heart of God and the whole thing. But, but there, this is there in David, okay? The essence of pride is that if you do something that threatens my value and honor, If you insult my ego, then I will do even worse to you. And we've all seen it, haven't you? I remember one time I was driving home from the city 
I was coming up north uh, on, on um, I think I was coming off the George Washington Bridge, going to go north on 87, and it divides there, where you can go north uh, on 87, or you can go south, and the, and the lane just literally split off, and there must have been something going on with the two cars in front of me, because as the, as the one car slowed down to, like, take the right, the other one kind of pulled up next to it and threw, like, a milkshake in the window, like a full entire milkshake right in the open window of this car, and the guy... In the, in the car that was about to exit north, veered and exited left and followed after the guy that was there. And I just remember thinking to myself, that is some serious, prideful commitment right there. Because if you go left there instead of going right, you just lost an hour. I don't care where you're going. You just lost a full hour. But hey, you insult my pride, I'll lose the rest of my day. I'm going to get even with you. It's vengefulness. It's pride. Let's follow the battle sequence and then see the outcome of the whole thing. Look at verse 9. It says that when Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him, before and behind, now remember, the Ammonites hired the Syrians. And so the battle surrounds Joab's men. He's got one force on the south and another force coming at him from the north. So Joab saw the front was, was against him before and behind, he chose all of the choice men of Israel and he put them in array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. And he said to his brother Abishai, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you help me. But if the children of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And so Joab says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take myself and the best of the fighters. It'll be a few of us, but the strongest of us. And we will face all of the Syrian force that's coming. You, Abishai, you take the rest of the army and you go against the Ammonites coming from the south. And let's do this. If I'm being defeated, you give me resources. If you're being defeated... I'll give you resources. It's a great battle plan when you're outnumbered. And then Joab says probably one of the best pieces of leadership advice in all of the Bible in verse 12. He says this, be of good courage and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God and the Lord do that which seemeth good. He says, listen, you do not show weakness. Okay, you're going into a battle right now that you're outnumbered, you're afraid of, you feel like you can't win. Understand, you face that battle with your head up and you do not show fear to those that are walking with you in it. You might be shaking in your booties right now because of what you're up against. He says, but you play the man. To play means to act. To be the man means that you go in with your head up and you don't look back. That's great advice. You might be a single mom here tonight and fighting a battle for your life right now, trying to raise your kids and keep a household together and deal with the own, your own stuff that's going on inside of you. Take the advice of Joab. If God has put you in that place and you've committed your situation to him where you are, you hold your head up high and you walk through and don't show weakness and the Lord do what's good. In his sight. Doesn't matter what your battle is, you face it with courage and you play the man. And you understand, I'm not being gender segre 
whatever in this. You, you, you show strength in the middle of it and you show the Lord's favor upon your life even when you're afraid. And so Joab drew nigh and the people that were with him unto the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, then fled they also before Abishai and entered into the city. So Joab returned from the children of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a sent and brought out the Syrians that were beyond the river. And they came to Helam and Shobach, the captain of the host of Hadarezer, went before them. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen Hadarezer. David has already fought and defeated him. And now having regrouped, Hadarezer capitalizes on the unified armies that are retreating. And he says, no, 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 no. We're not going to retreat. We're going to go back. Well, David hears that Hadarezer has reared his ugly head again. And now David says, ho, 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 verse 17. It says that when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and passed over Jordan and came to Helam and the Syrians set themselves in array against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David slew the men of the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen. And he smote Shobach, the captain of their host who died there. And when all the kings that were servants to Hadarezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. Okay, listen, this is the icing on the cake for a bad environment for David. And that's this. It's success in an environment where there's already pride. And it turns out to be a disaster. Now, I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. This victory, this advancement, this advantage that is now being enjoyed by the people of God, they have weakened the Syrians, silenced the Amorites, and raised the revenue for Israel's government all at once. This, all this that just happened, which sounds really, really good. This never would have happened if David hadn't sent messengers to show kindness unto the king's son. Okay. And you say, but but wait a minute, what do you mean this never would have happened? The situation is even better for Israel because it did. It's even better for Israel than it was before because David did this. Okay. But it's not good. And here's why. Because this outcome, this victory, this advancement sent a subtle message to David that we're going to see played out in the next chapter. That message is, whatever I do, it will work out for the even better. Whatever I do is going to work out for the even better. If I meddle in something that's not my business, maybe there'll be a little bit of drama. Maybe there'll be some consequences along the way, but it's going to work out for the even better because all things work together for the good to those that love God, right? I can, you know, I could do a head for an eye here and there. A couple heads can roll. We can, because it's going to come out even better. It's going to work out even better on the other side if I do. And David gets the message, this is dangerous. 
He gets the message that he has become a man who can live life without consequences. And that is the worst manifestation of pride because it will cause you to fall. And that's exactly what's about to happen in chapter 11 for David. Pride is the most subtle and also the greatest enemy of man. Pride has caused more destruction and death and misery than any other single thing that exists in the known world. There have been more callings, more families, more destinies, more marriages, more opportunities, more kings, more nations, more ministries that have fallen because of pride than because of any other thing. Pride has killed potential. It has killed prosperity. It has killed personalities. Pride has created more conflict, more confusion, and more frustration than any other thing. And pride has a higher body count and more victims than cancer, abortion, and heroin combined. And every single one of us is subject to it and what it does in a life. So what's the remedy at the end of such a depressing message about something that plagues all of us in some form or manifestation. What keeps pride out? Real quick and then we're done. Number one, embrace your thorn. And you can write that down. Embrace your thorn. The Apostle Paul says something extremely revealing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He's talking about all of the things that God has shown him and all of the ways that God has used him, all of the things in his life that could have turned out to make him think he was better than someone else. And he says this, listen to it. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, and lest I should be exalted above measure, that's pride, through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to Buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. God provided for Paul some form of pain that was constantly working in his body, in his mind, and in his life that kept him from ever being tempted to think that he was better than anyone else. He calls it a messenger which makes me think that he had a voice in his head that wouldn't shut up, that was always telling him how good enough he was not. How whatever he did was a failing and his messages were too long and that he was boring and that he was ugly and that his nose was a distraction to people and and that he couldn't get away from the message that was constantly being pumped in him, but that messenger would not allow him to get lifted up in pride in some way. And God will give, God will allow in your life some constant aggravation that is always there. You ever have a splinter? It's always there. Good things are happening, but I feel the pain of what's always there. We say, think what I could do if I didn't have this constant aggravation, this back pain, this crippling anxiety, this child that is a prodigal that is constantly threatening to be prison time for them and and embarrassment for me, this boss that just won't go away, just won't die, you know, (laughs) this thorn, this constant source of, think what life would be like if this thorn wasn't there. That's what we say, wherein God says, 
Think what you're saved from because you do have this thorn in your life. He has put it there to keep you from being lifted up in such a way, from being confident in such a way that you're going to do something that's going to ruin your life and your family forever. Embrace your thorn. Number two is give thanks for your limitations. Every single one of us has limitations. There are things that we are really good at and we thrive in. And there are other areas where we are horrible and we stink and we're embarrassed and we don't want anyone to know. I have the ability to get work done like no one else, but I can't get organized to save my life. I I can say no to a sale, man. Nobody's getting these dollars out of my hand, but I can't say no to my stomach. And, and, And I don't want anybody to know about it, but it's my weakness. I have never missed a day of work in all of my career. But I don't have any people skills and I have trouble relating even to my family and I don't want anyone to know about it. We have strengths and we have weaknesses. Listen to me. Every human being alive has two eyes, two ears, two arms, two legs, and one butt. There is a but in every life. I am really, really good, but I've got some serious limitations. And God has placed those limitations strategically in our lives where they are to keep us from being lifted up in pride. Don't wish your limitations away. Give thanks for your limitations. They're there for your protection. And finally, finally, number three, assign your value to your value, okay? Pride is the fiat currency of self-worth, and all fiat currencies fail, every single one of them, because things change, people change, and values change. And if you are assigning your value to something in your life that you have today, It's one day away from being absolutely worthless. We used to go, my wife and I, once a year to the Metropolitan Opera. There was a guy in the church who sang uh, in, in the opera, and he would just once in a while just throw us tickets. He got them for free, and he would say, you guys want to go to the Met? And we would say, it'll make a great date, and we would go to the Metropolitan Opera. I hope he's not listening tonight, okay, because, because the opera is amazing, for like four minutes, you know, <laughs> I mean, and, and it really is for that four minutes, it is something to go into the, to the place and, uh, and, and to see the costumes and the sets and the whole thing. But here, here's the amazing thing that I learned from, from the Met, from going to the opera. You go in there and you see these people that, that they, they, they look like they should have died like four years ago. They're probably like the median age is like 92 at the Met, you know, and they're wearing like mink coats and diamond earrings, and they have these gaudy hats and hairdos and these, these beautiful suits from 1962, right? And then all of them fall asleep two minutes in, and they don't wake up until the end. They literally snore. These people that have season tickets, they're there every single time. They snore through the whole thing. Their whole reason for going to the opera is to show off their mink coat, their diamond earrings, their nice clothes, and the whole thing, and then take a nap. And I'm thinking to myself, someone needs to tell them that these clothes are out. 
Nobody cares about this anymore. You know, it's gone. And so it is with everything that we use to make ourselves feel better than someone else. Because those things cannot lastingly make you, or even for a moment, actually make you better than someone else. They just don't, okay? Humility is not lowliness, okay? Humility is a proper assessment of yourself. And a proper assessment of yourself is to realize that your value is singularly and only in who you are linked to, and that is Jesus Christ himself. If you are in him and he is in you, then you are valuable because you're made in the image of God and the light of God is shining in your life and expressing God in a way that only your personality can. And that is the value of your life. There is nothing else. And everything and anything good that comes out of your life will be a byproduct of that. And everything else will burn up and be nothing. So embrace your value in Jesus and not in the things that make you feel good and feel better than someone else. Because one will destroy you and one will sustain you. One will diminish and the other will grow. One will die and one will last forever. Do you know Jesus tonight? The ultimate form of pride is to think that you can live independently of God. That I don't need him, I'm better than him, and the fact that I'm made in his image doesn't mean anything to me. That is the one and great deadly sin. And the warning of the scripture is beware of it because if it's in your life, it is doing something in you that you can't see right now and that you don't understand and that you won't even know what hit you until like lightning you fall. And so perhaps tonight there's a little bit of self-assessment that has to happen. Maybe even a little bit of repentance to say, you know what, God, I, I've been placing my value or searching for my value or defining my value in things that aren't valuable at all. But you say I'm valuable when I'm found in your son. And so, Lord, I forsake those things that before I thought were something. And I give myself to you unreservedly that your life in me would be the defining value of who I am and let there be nothing else. That's humility. And the Bible says that before honor is humility. And it's a safeguard. It's a protection. It's an insurance policy that what I've committed to him and the fruit that comes out of my life will be good fruit and it'll be lasting fruit. Do you want it? Stand with me. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your truth and for your ways. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and what is given to us through him. Thank you for your virtue, for your kindness, for your counsel. Thank you for the value that you've placed upon our lives because we put faith in your son. And I pray tonight, Lord, that we would feel your love in our hearts as the only thing that would truly satisfy truly sustain and truly last. So would you now, Lord, receive as we, as we lay down at the altar of living sacrifice, those things that we have thought foolishly made us something. And Lord, let us tonight forsake that, that we might embrace Christ more fully, more richly, more truly. 
So help us, Lord, now. Teach us, Lord, what these things mean. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.